The most important and long-lasting institution in Rancho Cordova history has been Mather Field, which would become Mather Air Force Base and today is Mather Airport. For 100 years, Mather has drawn people from around the country and around the world. But as the old saying goes, people's memories are good, but short. And that's what makes the contribution of former Mather Wing Commander, Colonel Robert J. Martinelli, so important. Missions were really complex. We, we'd be airborne with maybe four, five, six tankers in echelon, and each tanker would have four fighters on it, and we'd all be refueling at the same time. So if you can picture those airplanes echelon to the right, uh, about a mile apart and 500 feet different in altitude, and every tanker having at least four fighters sitting on it. And what they do is they come up and park on one wing, come in, get refueled, go to the other wing and hang out until the next guys come through. And the objective was to get them all topped off with gas so that when their strike time came, they'd all peel off the tanker, head to their targets. Colonel Martinelli's contributions to Mather have actually spanned more than 30 years. He first came to Mather during the Cold War to train at the beginning of his long Air Force career. And years later, he returned as its commander to close it down when the peace dividend was paid in 1992. Colonel Martinelli had a distinguished career in the United States Air Force. He began his military career flying combat missions over Vietnam, later served in various command and administrative postings, including an assignment at the Pentagon. In the 90s, when the Cold War was over and Saddam Hussein was defeated for the first time, the military began to downsize. During that time, Martinelli oversaw a $200 million expansion of one base to accommodate the relocation of troops and equipment. Locally, he later supervised drawdown and eventual closing of both Mather and McLennan Air Force bases. Upon his retirement, Bob went to work with Sacramento City College as Vice President and Chief Financial Officer. City College is one of four colleges in the Los Rios Community College District. The Los Rios system provides education, training and career development opportunities for more than 80,000 students annually in over 70 career fields. Today, Bob is a member of the Board of Directors of the California Capital Air Show, which is one of the largest and most respected air shows in the United States today. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with Colonel Robert Martinelli, and I hope you do too. My name is Charles Lego, and now let's get started. So what I'd like to do is start right at the beginning of Robert Martinelli's life. And if we can start our discussion today, we'd like to get to know you. So maybe you can tell us where you were born, where you're from, about your parents, your growing up as a child, etc and then we'll chronologically go through. Okay, well I was born and raised in the, I was born in San Francisco and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area, a town called South San Francisco, uh, just uh, close to the airport down there. Um, born 1948, uh, my parents were, my dad was a first generation immigrant uh, family from uh, Italy. Um, and then my mom was German uh, wow. I did, grew up down in uh, so the Bay. European parents. Yes. Yeah. And grew up in the Bay Area. Uh, went to school in South San Francisco, and then went to college in at San Francisco State. 
and that was in the 60s. Of course, the Vietnam War was raging at the time, and all young men at that time were subject to the draft. So I looked at different options to uh, meet that commitment, that obligation that we all had. Uh, as long as I was in school, I had a deferment, but at the end of when you got your degree and finished school, uh, you were no longer eligible for deferment. So long story short, there was an Air Force ROTC program at San Francisco State. So I went down, took the tests, and uh, did did well, and was invited to join that detachment, and which ultimately led to a commission in the Air Force. So the Air Force was your first choice to join the military? Well, to be quite honest and frank, I was looking for a way to satisfy the military commitment. If uh, Navy ROTC had been there, I'd have probably joined that, or Army or whatever. But right. it happened to be Air Force. That's right. what I joined. And in looking back at it, uh, it was just a wonderful choice and yeah. a wonderful decision. Right. But that was uh, 1970. I graduated college in, in June of 70. I got commissioned a couple days after I graduated. Uh, married my high school sweetheart on in August of 1970. And uh, was ordered active duty that same month, later in August. So what, what did your parents do? My dad was a um, bar and restaurant guy. He was an incredible cook. He was, yeah. you know. Well, being Italian. Yeah, yes. But uh, young boys, especially back in those days, always had some sort of apprenticeship. My uncle was a barber. And my dad was a butcher by trade. and uh, But he was a great cook, and he ended up opening bars and restaurants in, in South City, uh, several. Uh, but I, in fact, I worked in a lot of them. As wow. A, you had more than one? Oh, yeah. I mean, the main street of South San Francisco, Grand Avenue, had a lot of pubs, if you will. And, no, but uh, I mean, he owned more than one? Not at any given time. Oh, He just oh, oh, bought time. and sold yeah, them over yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But then, I uh, thought he was like a mogul with all no, these no, bars. No, 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 not at all. I mean, uh, he ended up buying a... a really a legendary restaurant in South San Francisco okay. called Oliver's uh, that the building is long gone now. There's a parking lot on it. But anyway, uh, that was his passion was uh, the food service business, and he did really well at it. And, and like I say, I worked in it as a busboy, short order cook, bartender. Wow. You know, I did all that kind of stuff, just helping my family. And my mother was a school secretary. She, you know, worked for decades in the, in right. the school secretary business wow. and eventually retired from that. Okay. So you went to college. Were you a good student when you were young? Well, I had a passion for chemistry. You I, did? Uh, my brother, my older brother was uh, a scientist, and I just got very interested in chemistry. I always envisioned myself being a, somebody working in a lab with a white coat and uh, being a scientist. You know, that was my passion back then right. as a kid. So I, my degree is in chemistry from San Francisco State, and like I said, the, the military thing was uh, to be just a temporary go serve the, the country, do my military time and get out and get a real job, you know. But uh, when I went on active duty, I found it was uh, interesting and exciting. Uh, my wife, my brand new wife, was uh, equally interested and excited about what we were doing and where we were going and that sort of stuff. And, you know, 30 years later, the, the Air Force threw me out because that's the most years you could serve right. was 30 <laughs> So what, what age were you when you joined the Air Force? Well, started college at 18, right out of high school, graduated college uh, at age 22. You needed 120 units to graduate. I had 120.5 when I graduated. I just wanted to get on with the business of living and so forth. So 
22 when I went on active duty okay. and got commissioned. And as I mentioned, I came here to Sacramento to Mather Air Force Base right. to do my initial flight training. Right. So when someone joins the Air Force, are they joining the Air Force to become a pilot? Because there's a lot of other things to do in the Air Force, right? You have mechanics and exactly. I'm sure you have. Right people that run the kitchens or whatever, oh, right, right. everything, right? Like, so did you join specifically to become a pilot? Uh, no. Uh, when you go through the uh, commissioning process, you're tested and, you know, they, they look for strengths and weaknesses and all that. But there was three categories you could become an officer through the officer program, three categories. Category one was flying, and you could either go to pilot training or navigator training. Navigator training is where I ended up. Uh, number two was science and technology, and that's how I originally joined the unit, was a SciTech officer candidate. Uh, and then the third category was kind of general services, supply, logistics, okay. those kinds of things. What's the science one? What do they do? Well, I wasn't clear on that. And, and uh, like I said, in my junior year, when I became part of the professional officer corps, in my junior year, I was in the SciTech arena. And I envisioned working in a lab and doing something like that. Um, the, the commander of the unit, the professor of aerospace sciences there, great guy. I really admired him, but he pulled me aside one day and said, look, I've got no quotas to make. I, he said, but I've known you for a year now and I don't think you're going to be happy being a side tech guy in the air force as an officer. He said, you're going to end up running a fuels depot somewhere or something like that. He said, if you're going to be in the air force, you ought to fly. And I said, okay, you know, all I'm going to do is four years and get out. But, uh, um, my eyes were not good enough to go to pilot training. So I opted for navigator training that happened to be up here in Sacramento, not too far from my hometown. So I thought, well, we'll go do nav training and go fly for a little bit and then wow. get out and get a real job. <laughs> so you joined the air force with the view of becoming an officer. Oh yeah. I mean, that, yeah. that was the, the reserve, the ROTC program is a reserve officer training course. So, so it is, joined, okay. it is a precondition pre-commissioning uh, program and an officer you became because we'll talk about that because you got you ended up as a colonel yes um okay so you end up at mather and in those days from what i understand mather was a very active air force base huge <laughs> and the navigators were all taught there right that was the navigator school was it the navigator school for the air force or just one of the navigator schools it was the navigator school for the department of defense Okay. Uh, many years earlier, 1964, if I recall the history properly, but uh, there was a large navigator training base in Texas, um, and that base was closed, and all of navigator training was consolidated I'd at Mather. And because of the similarities in tra training, uh, we did other service training as well. So the Navy trained uh, what's called table navigators, not fighter guys, but guys that are flying something like a C-130 uh, with a table and radar and that kind of thing. Uh, we, we had a Marine program. Um, we trained, when we closed many years later, we trained over 80 countries, international uh, customers that were getting training here. So, yeah, Guard, Reserve, Active Duty, all services were trained at Mather. It was a big operation. So for the lay people, and me included, the navigator, what, what so you were in a cockpit, you got the pilot, sits on the left, right? You've got the guy next to him on the right. Co-pilot. Is the navigator the guy in the back at a table? That's him? Yes. Uh, yeah. The navigator, the aeronautical rating of navigator is something that's in, in it's in law. I, I 
don't recall if it's title 10 or something like that, but the descriptor in, in, in American law describes a pilot aeronautical rating and it describes a navigator or naval flight officer. That's the Navy equivalent of that. Uh, so that's a generic title and the wings you wear designate that. But all the services have different names for the position in the actual aircraft. So for what is the job? What is your job? The job is positioning the aircraft, rate, time, and distance. Uh, I, in, the, in the airplane, I, where to go. Yeah. And yeah. F- well, knowing where you are, where to go, and how to get there on time. Wow. <laughs> okay. And, and if you think back, uh, you know, a lot of navigators are nicknamed Magellan for the, uh, the navigators of old that, that discovered America and, and sailed the, the seven seas and that sort of stuff. And the, the means of navigation, uh, the very basics of it is dead reckoning, you know, and, and not exactly sure where that term came from, but a lot, of, a lot of people say you're dead if you don't reckon properly, you know, but dead reckoning is just taking your, where you are, how fast are you going? What heading are you on? How long did you do that? And then you're going to be out there. You know, that's your dead reckoning position. I see. But to fly across the oceans and so forth, uh, you need to be able to substantiate that position using some other means. In the airplane I went to and what we were trained at at Mather, you had navigation aids like radar and some electronic aids like TACAN and VOR and so forth. But once you're out over an ocean, you were relying on celestial. And as rudimentary as that may sound, and it, it really was, you were with the sextant and you were observing the sun or the stars wow. and drawing lines of position, getting them to integrate and, you know, to, to uh, intersect. And uh, that established your position. Then you dead reckon ahead and, you know, establish your ground speed and wow. your time and so forth. Yeah, it was fascinating. In fact, just a, a quick anecdote. I was... Um, in the KC-135 was the first airplane I flew. So a KC-135, I looked it up actually, yeah. are those big fuel tankers, right? Yes. That refuel airplanes. In flight. Which I'm going to talk to you about that because to me, that's fascinating. It was to me too as yeah. a 22-year-old kid, I'll tell you. <laughs> because when you see it, it looks like they're standing still, like they're not even moving. Uh, the uh, airspeed, we were 255 knots indicated was the speed that we refueled the B-52. That translated at altitude to about 400, 420 knots worth of speed. What's that in miles? Uh, 420, probably 450, 460, something like that, miles per hour. 400 miles an hour? Oh, yeah, 450, you know, nautical miles per hour versus miles per hour. And the B-52 would be doing the same? Of course, yeah. Wow. And tucked in 50 feet from you. Wow. And at that point, uh, you clear the boom operator to extend the boom and right. plug them, basically. Okay, so we're going to get into that. So okay. um, so that's what you trained on, on those planes? Well, I trained at Mather in the T-29. That was uh, the predecessor to the T-43 that was the nav training when we, when we closed. But I then went, and you learned Celestial. That was the biggest portion of the, the training at Mather during those days. And, and, of course, the kids that went through and learned Celestial and went to an airplane like I did, the KC-135 or C-141, they, they used that Celestial operationally. But those that went to something like the F-4, they never saw Celestial again. You know, and most of them, if they knew they were going to an F-4, they didn't even want to learn all the Celestial stuff. But the anecdote I was going to mention to you was I was on my way to Vietnam in the early 70s after completing training and going to my, my first operational unit. And I went home to see my folks because I was going to be gone over Christmas. 
And I recalled that uh, the guy that owned a clothing store in our downtown area, Ray Rakuchi was his name, had flown uh, in the Army, obviously, but flown in World War II. So I went down and just chatted with him. I knew him. We were hunting together and so forth. And I said, hey, Ray, how did you navigate, you know, during World War II? And he flew the B-17. He said, ah, you wouldn't believe the stuff I did. And I said, no, tell me. So he started describing the celestial procedures and the dead wrecking procedures and timing and all that sort of stuff. And I said, Ray, you wouldn't believe it, but here 30 years later, that's exactly what I'm doing. Wow. I'm in a jet airplane. It moves a lot faster, but the procedures are all identical. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And today, of course, it's, you don't even well, need a pilot, right? The computer does it. Yeah. The, uh, the KC-135 no longer has a navigator because the uh, navigation systems right. are so precise, the inertial navigation, the uh, the uh, satellite navigation, the GPS systems and all that. And of course, that's what all the commercial airliners use. But back in my day, that's all we had was right. over land, you had radio aids, but also radar. Right. And then over, over the water. And of course, in my time flying the, the 135, we were going back and forth across the Pacific. So our standard mission was to leave the West Coast from somewhere down at March or Castle and head to Hawaii, then Hawaii to Guam, and Guam into Vietnam and Thailand, and that's wow. where we flew operationally during the war. So you did go to Vietnam? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and what did you do there? What was your job, your mission? Refueling. Uh, re oh, ref so you still did the same thing? Refueling fighters, yeah. Um, the KC-135 was the only tanker operational at that time in the early 70s. That's when I was active in, in the tanker. Uh, but we... State were based at several different locations within the Southeast Asia Theater, uh, and our typical mission was to take off with 120,000 pounds of fuel and uh, go up into an orbit area and wait for fighters. We were fragged. But we had an order for what fighters to expect and how much fuel to offload to each of them. Uh, but you'd refuel until you ran out of gas, and wow. then you'd go back and land. So you're like a gas station in the air. Exactly, precisely that. And, yeah. and the fighters that came up, our refuelings were normally pre-strikes, so you could look at them, and they were laden with bombs, and they were going north, uh, mostly to North Vietnam for uh, attacks up there, but also in the south, you know, just flying tactical missions and so forth. During the big pushes in uh, 72, 73 time pack, uh, period, the linebacker time, um, the fighter missions were really complex. We, we'd be airborne with maybe four, five, six tankers in echelon, and each tanker would have four fighters on it, and we'd all be refueling at the same time. So if you can picture those airplanes echelon to the right, uh, about a mile apart and 500 feet different in altitude, and every tanker having at least four fighters sitting on it, and what they do is they come up and park on one wing, come in, get refueled, go to the other wing and hang out until the next guys come through. And the objective was to get them all topped off with gas so that when their strike time came, they'd all peel off the tanker, head to their targets. And then other tankers would get airborne behind us and be up there for what was called post-strike refueling. So as they came off their targets and uh, dropped their bombs and so forth, uh, they'd be looking for a tanker, in some cases, to refuel before they could get back to their home plate. Uh, unfortunately, if they needed post-strike refueling, it's probably because they were in trouble. You know, they had had uh, bombs hung up or been shot up to where they're losing fuel or something like that. So uh, a lot of times when we were airborne for post-strike, uh, you didn't refuel anybody, and that was a good thing. 
So when you're waiting for that, you, do you circle? Is that what happens? Yeah, there's different procedures depending on who you're refueling. But in Southeast Asia, uh, we went to areas called anchors. Uh, and you just had a geographical point on the ground. And you just flew a large, actually, you could do whatever you wanted to, but just stay within that box in that anchor area. Oh, I see. And then uh, so there you're was, just going round and round. Yeah. And then there was GCI sites on the ground, ground controlled intercept, uh, the radar sites that basically vectored the fighter to the tanker. And they hook up with you. And then what we do is, depending on where they wanted to get off the boom, and, and We'd get them as far north and as close to their target areas as possible so they get the last couple of drops of gas, and then they'd punch off the boom in their flights and, and head into their target areas. So I've, so I've seen, you know, obviously you see it, um, the plane comes up behind, they hook. How long does it take to, to give a plane fuel? Is it quick? Oh, very quick, yeah. I mean, minutes. Minutes? Know, yeah. Uh, so it comes gushing we, out, it's in? We'd pass... Um, you know, you don't talk about fuel transfers in terms of gallons. You talk about it in terms of weight, pounds. So we would offload maybe 8,000 pounds of fuel to a, a fighter, um, 8, 10, 12,000 pounds of fuel to the fighter, maybe take them five minutes on the boom, something like that. Um, and, it, you know, depending on the airplane you're refueling, a B-52, they might have a fuel load, a fuel offload of 50, 60, 100,000 pounds of fuel, depending on how much they needed and what their mission was and so forth. So you'd pump it a little faster, more pumps on in the airplane. In the tanker, uh, the old version that I was flying, the A model, um, between the pilot and the co-pilot was a fuel panel and it uh, had all these diagrams and lights and switches and so forth. But on the tanker itself, there was a whole, uh, a number of different tanks where fuel was stored, forward body, aft body, center wing, wing tanks and all that. So it was a co-pilot's job to keep the switches in the right position to move fuel around and then basically to to where we could offload it through that boom. And there was a boom operator in the back of the Is airplane. Is it like a video you can see? Or? Yeah, it wasn't video in those days. It was just... Yeah. It was just, just a little screen? One a screen at all. You mean the boom operator? Well, how do you see the plane? You're flying, you're looking this way, the Correct. plane is behind yeah. you. Do you see? Yeah, the, the pilot, co-pilot, and navigator were in the cockpit, and there was a fourth seat in the cockpit for the boom operator. But the boom operator during refueling operations went aft. Oh, so he laid looking. on his belly. Oh, I see, yeah. And he looked out of a window, wow. and he just looked down at the fighter or the receiver, and whatever that was. And communicate back. And then, yeah, once we got in refueling formation where the receiver was 50 feet behind us, then the uh, communications to the receiver went to the boom operator and he talked wow. and he basically cleared them, clear them yeah. to the contact. Well, it is. I mean, it, it truly was um, a fascinating mission, especially for a guy like me just getting out of college. Right. And first time. And you were how old then? You were like early 20s still? Yeah. I was, well, I was 22 when I started school up here and I was probably 24 going over there, 25, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, for somebody like me that the first time I flew anywhere was when the Air Force bought me a ticket and sent me to Amarillo, Texas for basic training. Uh, You just didn't fly a lot back in those days. You know, the families didn't go on vacations with flying and so forth. Uh, So for somebody like me that had never done much of that to then get into a a big jet like that, start flying across the oceans, um, 
I know I, when I first checked into my uh, first assignment up at Fairchild Air Force Base in uh, Washington State, uh, my wife and I were, you know, newly married, just been married about a year, and we were living in some temporary quarters. And the squadron ops officer said, I need you to go fly the next couple of days and, and uh, pack a bag as you're going to be on the road. And I said, okay, you know, what's that mean? <laughs> well, we took off and flew uh, out to Hawaii, then on to, um, actually went from Hawaii up to Kadena, which is in Okinawa, and then flew from Kadena down into uh, the Southeast Asia air defense zone and picked up some fighters, actually got combat pay for that mission, <laughs> and then out to Guam and then across. So I was gone for, I don't know, five or six days uh, on a, what we called affectionately a fighter drag. We just went, were picking up fighters and dragging them across the ocean. And my little wife was sitting back at home wondering when I'm getting back, you know, that kind so of thing. What, what does that mean, picking up and dragging? So you mean you would go and they would follow you, so they always had fuel. Well, yeah, without having to land. That's correct. Yeah. Well, they, they there's no way a, a fighter like an F four, no. any of them, F 16s right. today and F thirty five, so forth. None of them can make their way across the ocean. Right. Uh, so we would do these things called fighter drags, uh, yeah, yeah, where yeah. you would be tasked with a uh, a number of tankers, usually three or four in formation, and you'd have uh, a flight of fighters assigned, and you drag them across the ocean. But aren't they going a lot faster than you? No, 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 no. no. I mean, oh. they can refuel. I mean, yeah, they okay. can they can go faster. Yeah, but, but once they've got fuel, they they keep up with you. Oh yeah, well, well they have enough fuel. To well, they take typically take off somewhere different than the tanker, and we get airborne and get so and rendezvous somewhere. Okay. So then they're yeah. in formation with us, and we just fly across right. the ocean. And when we get to the right. the base, they break. And off. then the last question on all that, which is. I've always wondered when the plane, like you hear when a plane lands and a commercial, there has to be a gap with the plane behind because of the wind, right? The, 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 they always say that the, what you, the, is it the wind? The, the, well, turbulence? The thrust, yeah. The thrust behind the plane when it's landing. Yeah. There's none of that with this? Well, <laughs> um, you'll sometimes hear in an airport setting, Certainly, if you're listening to a tower frequency, you'll hear when a big airplane lands, exactly. like a C5 yeah. or a 747 right. or something like that, they'll caution— They don't want a little plane behind. Well, they'll caution the aircraft behind, regardless of how big it is, to, to be cautious for wake turbulence. Right. That's and, I mean. and that's yeah. the air being disturbed exactly. from the jet engines, yeah. the wings, uh, the vortices coming right. off the wings and so forth. Um, there, there is some of that with a, a fighter, but the fighter tucks in— you know, below you basically comes up to make contact. Uh, the phenomena that was interesting was when you refueled a really big airplane like a C-5, there was something called a bow wave where, you know, the, the air is a fluid and it basically that big airplane is pushing that air and you'd get this bow wave that would tend to want to raise the tail of the tanker so the, the tanker pilot is adjusting to keep the tail down and keep everything in line, you know. So there are, there are some... Um, there are some issues with that, airplanes flying in close proximity. But generally speaking, the, the distance where they're holding, where they are on the boom and so forth is uh, all very doable. Wow. Works well. <laughs> so your, what was your rank then? You're just uh... – Actually, my first tour over to Southeast Asia, I went and came back still as a second lieutenant. Uh, but most of the time I was a, a lieutenant, first lieutenant, yeah. and then a young captain. So uh, then you became a captain? Mm -hmm. That was your first promotion? 
Well, second lieutenant, the yeah, first yeah. lieutenant, then captain, a captain. Yeah. yeah. So then when Vietnam obviously ended at some point, mm -hmm. when you came back to Mather? Well, no, I. Uh, <laughs> most navigators really, I mean, Mather in Sacramento, California was a great assignment. And everybody that was here loved it. I used to work for a guy when I was in Texas that called Mather for navigators was like Mecca. You know, everybody wanted to come back. So to answer your question, yes, when I completed my operational assignment up at Fairchild, I was really wanting to come back to Mather and be an instructor here and, and work in that environment. But the Air Force had different ideas. So I wasn't able to come back to Mather right then. I was actually sent to uh, Castle Air Force Base, which was down in Merced, California. It's closed now. But Castle Air Force Base was the combat crew training school for KC-135s and B-52s, so Strategic Air Command in those days. It's gone now. But uh, all the SAC initial air crew training was done down at Castle. So I was assigned down there for four years. As an instructor? As an instructor, right. Okay. So you, you, you flew as an instructor team with a pilot, instructor boom operator, instructor pilot, and instructor nav, and you got a new crew every, I think uh, that program took about two months for the kids to go through it. And you did that for four years? Four years, yeah. Yeah. And then what came next for you with your Air Force career? Well, I was uh, not certain about making it a career, but, uh, you know, my wife and I were liking what we were doing, and we had a new son by that time. Because um, initially you said you were going to just do four years, yeah. just, <laughs> but you ended up 30 years. Yeah. Right. Well, it's, you know, you're a young kid. Four years is nothing. Four or right. five years uh, is nothing. But... We just, we liked what we were doing. And I say we as a family. I liked right. what I was doing professionally. My wife got along really good. Did you move around a lot? Oh, yeah. Yeah. In uh, I was 30 years, we had 17 moves, you know. And I remember growing up in England, um, there was a lot of American Air Force bases. Oh, yeah, sure. In England. Did you Many, go to England? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. In fact, stationed there? Not stationed. Uh, they the, just flew in and out? Yeah, the yeah. airplane I was in, the 135, didn't have many overseas assignments. It had... We went TDY, temporary duty, to those places. So if you know where Mildenhall is, it's, yeah. it's about an hour north yeah. of London. Uh, I went to Mildenhall several times. And, uh, okay. You know, we flew operational missions out of there. Spain, uh, Torreon, Spain, Panama, a lot of places around the world. <laughs> so it, when you join the, uh, the Air Force and you think, oh, I'm just going to do my four years, at what point do you think this is a career and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this, I like it? Well, or is it just you think, well, I'll do another four years and then another four. And then next thing you know, you've done 26. Well, the, um, the system for officers is called up or out. And it's changed a lot these days. But back then, you had to get promoted or you would get, get thrown out, basically. Uh, if you didn't make major, you couldn't uh, serve up to 20 years to, uh, oh. to actually get a retirement. So it was kind of a gamble. And you had to... Take that into consideration so as you to keep getting you, promoted. Yeah, exactly. Uh -huh. But there was um, during the late seventies, as Vietnam wound down and all that, they were moving KC one thirty fives into the Guard and Reserve, and I thought, well, heck, that might be a good deal. Just go work for a Guard or a Reserve unit, and you don't have to move around so much. You know, your wife could get a job or kids in school, right. that sort of stuff. Um, and I actually got hired by a reserve unit down in, in uh, Southern California at March and then thought, 
long and hard about that and said, gee, do I really want to do this for the rest of my life, you know, be a navigator in a 135? So I turned down that assignment there and then was subsequently offered an assignment here at Mather. Uh, the, there used to be C-130s here at Mather in the reserves and they became 135s. It's actually the 135 unit that's over at Beale right now. They'll be at the air show in two weeks. Yeah. Uh, but was offered a job there, turned that down as well. And that decision kind of made up my mind and our mind to just stay with the Air Force and see what comes next. Yeah. And uh, my next assignment out of out of uh, Castle was to go down to Texas, to Randolph Air Force Base in Texas. And I was in a non-flying job at that time at the Manpower and Personnel Center down there. And it's hard to not like San Antonio. It's a great city, great town, great military town. San Antonio, Texas? Yeah. Yeah. San Antonio, Texas. So did that. And what rank were you there? Major? Uh, I was a captain when I got assigned down there. I made major while I was there. Yeah. And got picked up for school, as we say. So uh, leaving San Antonio, I went to school at Norfolk, uh, Virginia, the Armed Forces Staff College there. Right. And then went to the Pentagon and served there. You did? Yeah. Uh, served in both the JCS and the Air Staff at the Pentagon. And then, and that was working at the Pentagon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When floor. I first came here, I lived in Crystal City. Yeah, know it well. <laughs> right across the street, I, from my, you know, there's, there's all these apartment complexes there. No, well, I would get up and I'd look out my window, and there was the Pentagon yep. right there, yep. right in front of me. Passed it every morning on the yep. way to work. Right, you know? and then I moved to Alexandra. Actually, uh, to where my son was living up until recently. Yeah. He just moved out of Alexandria. Yeah, wow. Yeah, no, I know that area very, very well. Yeah, um, But did the Pentagon tour, and by that time I was a lieutenant colonel. I think I had a line number. I was selected for lieutenant colonel. And you went through a process where they screened you for command, and I was selected for command. And uh, the command opportunity that opened up was at Mather. So I was transferred from the Pentagon here to Sacramento to Mather Air Force Base and assumed command of a squadron here. 16 years it took me to get back, but I got wow. back here. <laughs> Were you happy to be coming back? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Big time. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, the way your thinking goes, because um, I was busy at the Pentagon and I had to go through flight training out here to get qualified to be an instructor and all that. I had my wife come out here and I said, find us a place to live because there was no base housing at that time available for squadron commanders. But I said, find a place to live, but find it somewhere close to Mather. So I don't have a big commute every day and right. I could be at the squadron and all that. So after she's out here for a few days, she calls and said, I found a great lot. And I said, well, where? And she said, well, it's El Dorado Hills. <laughs> so where is that? <laughs> yeah, not that close. Yeah. So we ended up buying a lot and building a house, which that was the last thing I wanted to do because of all the work that's involved with, right. you know, buying a new house and getting into it. But you're probably home. very happy today that you did well, that. Well, yeah, it turned out. Yeah. Typical. That she was made a very good investment, I would imagine. Well, she made the right yeah. decision. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, it was a good investment. Yeah. And we hung on to it. I was only stationed here for two years and then got moved again. Right. Uh, but um, yeah, it was a good decision. So what does it mean that when you come here and you're in charge of a squadron? What does that mean? Well, every everybody, I won't say everybody, but most officers aspire to command, to lead. That's what being an officer is all about. And uh if you're a flying officer, a rated officer, a pilot, or navigator, the first opportunity you get to command, as late as it may sound, is as a lieutenant colonel. So 
it was a great opportunity, something everybody wants to do. It's a very competitive process, and I was tickled to death to be able to command a squadron. But the squadrons out here were training squadrons, so I had a cadre of about 40 officers that worked for me, all instructors, you know, staff, uh, clerks, and that sort of thing, too. And then we had uh, young students, new graduates out of uh, the commissioning sources, whether it's ROTC, the academy, OTS, and so forth, but coming in for their initial training in the airplane. And the squadron I had, uh, we also trained naval officers here at, uh, at Mather. So every third class that I got was an Air Force class, but the other two were naval officers, uh, ensigns coming through. And their ultimate assignment was into a P-3, the patrol aircraft, the anti-submarine warfare uh, aircraft that uh, flew all over the coasts. Uh, there's still a squadron up at Whidbey Island, but there was a lot of P-3s. And are these aircraft carrier planes? No, no. They're, no. Uh, they're four-engine. Uh, the P okay. P-3 Orion okay. is a four-engine uh, turboprop airplane, basically. Uh, Land-based. They, right. they fly off the, the hard deck, not, the, not a carrier. And you were the highest person at Mather? The highest rank? No, no, I was one of many squadron commanders. Oh. Uh, for nav training, navigator training, we had five squadrons. Oh, uh, that, oh okay. Uh, they were somewhat different in their mission, but those were the five flying squadrons. And then there was a, a, a T-43 squadron and a T-37 squadron as well that uh, were commanded by a rated officer or pilot. But no, I was uh, a lieutenant colonel at that time. The, the commander of the base, the base, the wing commander was a colonel, full colonel right. at that time. And you got there eventually. I did. Yeah. <laughs> At Mather? Yes. Yeah. Um, so Mather was a busy place. It was. A very large base. Uh, a lot of aircraft in and out? Oh, yeah. Uh, every base is uh, belongs to a major air command in the Air Force. Uh, Mather historically was an air training command base, and it was true while I was there in my time there. But we also had tenants, and the tenant at Mather was the uh, 320th bomb wing, so the B-52s and KC-135. So in addition to the aircraft that we flew as part of the training mission, the T-43s, T-37s, we also had a full bomb wing of KC-135s, B-52s. And in the, I think it was around 1977, the Air Force stationed a reserve squadron here of KC-135. So... A lot of tankers, a lot of bombers, and then all the training. So a aircraft. lot of big planes. B-52s are not small planes. Correct. Yeah. Right. And that was the mainstay of the B-52 or the uh, the bomber fleet and uh, the main warrior during the Cold War. Right. Know, that uh, we waged all during that period of time. So that also equates to a lot of people living here. A lot of people. And then the, the beauty of this area was, I mentioned, there was 88 different allied countries that came here, different services. A lot of young people coming through, going through their training, and then moving on. So a lot of people got to see and experience Sacramento and more specifically Rancho Cordova. And I, I would argue that the Air Force left a mark on this area and is part of the, uh, the culture, the, the whole nature of the Rancho Cordova area. You know, right. those, that multicultural, uh, different services, different countries living here and experiencing here. And who, what's not to like about Sacramento and Rancho Cordova area, you know, with the American River and right. Tahoe and San Francisco yeah. and all that. And everybody knew that. Yeah. Um, now, geographically, we're in a great spot here. Absolutely. Yeah. And Mather, as the only NAV training base uh, in, the, in the country, obviously a lot of people wanted to be assigned here. But 
um, when I was flying as a squadron commander, I had my schedulers only fly me on Fridays. Uh, if, you know, that was my preferred day to fly. Cause on Friday afternoon at Mather, it looked like an air show out on the ramp because everybody and his uncle would bring their airplane into Mather for Friday night at the old club, what was called jock night, uh, junior officer council night. <coughs> you mean their own planes? Well, they're, they're military. Planes. Oh, okay. I mean, that's why it would, when you landed from a mission, from our training mission, you'd look at the ramp and there'd be jets in wow. aircraft in from everywhere. Wow. <laughs> and the club would just be roaring. And of course, the, so what uh, year would that have been? It, it's, 86 to 88 time yeah. period. That's when okay. I was squadron commander here. And there were women flying uh, in combat aircraft at that time. Uh, but a lot of the old ways of the military, you know, men only. Right. Um, the sororities down at Sac State were invited on base and they were welcome to come through the gate at Mather and um, come to the club for a Friday night. Right. One time. So there were good times. There were really yeah. rollicking times. And uh, I think, again, part of the... Uh, the history of Mather and, and its position in the community here. Fun times. And um, so then you become a, a full-on colonel. Uh, yeah. When I left here, I was reassigned back to Randolph Air Force Base and was actually put into a colonel's position to be the director of uh, assignments for the Air Training Command, which is headquartered at, uh, at Randolph Air Force Base. And I did get picked up for colonel uh, early, uh, a year below the zone uh, on that assignment. Yeah. Can you fly an airplane? Can I physically fly an airplane? Yeah. I don't have a pilot's license. No. Uh, but, but if you needed to, could you? Oh, I think so. I just a little hope. Is that enough? Hope, watching? And, hope and a prayer, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I just had my grandson out here uh, this summer um, for about three weeks. But during that time, I had him out flying at Mach 5 Aviation up in Auburn, just getting him a little stick. You mean literally flying? Yes, getting a little stick time. He's 10 years old, but he's really good at what he do at flying. He just uh, took the controls, obviously flying with an instructor. He's uh, too short to actually reach the rudder pedals, but sitting on a couple of wow. pillows. But he flew the airplane, made takeoff landings, and uh, did really well. So he's going to be a pilot. Well, I don't know. It's up to yeah. him. He's a young boy, you know, 10 right. years old. Uh, the summer before, I had both my grandsons, a 10 and a 14-year-old out, and both of them went to fly, and both did very well. You know, wow. they were comfortable in the air, could uh, follow directions of the instructor pilot and so forth. So um, I don't know if they'll – either one of them will go that direction, right, but right. Uh, exposing then, them to it. And your son, I heard, lives in Jerusalem? Oh, uh, yes. He, yeah? he is on assignment to Jerusalem right now. Is he in the military? He's not. He's uh, Department of State. Okay. He's a foreign service officer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He actually uh, went to law school, um, became a, a lawyer, was serving in Washington, D.C., uh, uh, and then was in a private firm, an not an equity partner, but a, a partner yeah. in the law firm. And with two boys, he just found that he didn't have enough time for um, to spend with his boys. So he switched careers <laughs> and got out of the law business, and he got into the, the— So he's with the State Department. State Department, Foreign Service, and— uh, <clears throat> Happens to like that part of the world and uh, is actually posted up in, in Jerusalem. They've completed a year there now. He, his wife, and his So at the people. embassy there? Yes. He yeah. works in the in the embassy that re was recently opened in right. Jerusalem. You know, it used to be in Tel Aviv. Right, the one that moved. Correct. With our last. Uh, President Trump yeah. moved it to, uh, to Jerusalem. Yeah. So it's, um, and 
my wife and I, wherever they've been, we've tried to go visit them, yeah. especially when the grand boys came along. Because I know when we first talked to you about coming here, I think you were in Jerusalem. Uh, that's right. I yeah. did. I responded to you from Jerusalem. But, but yeah. we've been there twice now, yeah. uh, once for a month and the last time. Israel, I think. I've never been. But it seems to me that it would be a good place to visit. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I just... If you want to have your history buff, I guess that's the place to go. Well, and... and a lot of times I was wishing I had paid more attention during the history of Western civilization right, right, periods, right. you know, in my schooling. But, uh, yeah, it, it was just fascinating. There's just so much history right, right. there in Jerusalem, right. in the old city of yeah. Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives and so right. forth. Just fascinating. Yeah. So I've done, I've done a lot of study since. Yeah. <laughs> so let's go back to Mather. Now, you were the last, you, you basically closed Mather, right? I did. So what? tell us about that. What does that mean? Were you the last... You're the last officer to close the door and say thank you? Well, um, I was, after I made colonel, I went to uh, to school for a year, uh, the war college down in, in uh, Alabama, Maxwell Air Force Base, Alabama. And I, from there, I was assigned to Shepherd Air Force Base in um, North Texas as the base commander there. And during those that time, that was the early 90s, um, Base closure was the order of the day. I mean, there, we were closing bases all over the country, all over the world, actually. Uh, and if you may recall, but there was four rounds of base closure. It was called BRAC, the yeah. Base Realignment and Closure System. And <coughs> Mather was designated for closure in round one of BRAC. Excuse me. Um, in 1988, actually. And I was, like I said, I was stationed at Shepherd, and Shepherd was affected by base closure, but in the sense that two other bases were closing and all the mission was being moved into Shepard. So as a base commander, I had over $200 million worth of construction that was forecast for the base. And my boss, I was working for Two Star at that time, said, figure out where it's all going, you know, build a base plan. And about a year into that assignment, a year and a half into that assignment, I was notified I was uh, gonna come to Mather and be the wing commander here. And it was closing. So it was uh, just a, a extreme opposite of right. a base that's longstanding. Shepard had been around since the uh, I'm sorry, since World War II, um, and it was expanding hugely. And now you're going to Sh to Mather Air Force Base, and you're going to work closure there. Um, so, so you, know, you came here with the view of closing it. It, it was already designated to close, yeah. and but the thing was that. Uh, you know, the mission of Mather for decades had been training navigators and training aviators. Uh, during World War II, we trained both pilots and navigators. Uh, but the mission, uh, when you're a closure base, becomes multifaceted because not only did we have to continue training, we still had students on board, we were flying training missions and all that. We also had to work on the process of transferring the mission. It was one of a kind here at Mather, so it had to go somewhere. And it was going to Randolph Air Force Base in Texas. So we had to, you know, draw down training assets and move them, still doing our job here, but move them to Randolph to where they could get in place and start standing them up uh, so they could take students through the pipeline. But then the third aspect of the mission was closure. And again, it, you know, when a base is open and running and no threat of closure, you don't have to think about closing it. But if you go back to the beginning when a base opened up, Whoever was opening that base was going through all the process of building infrastructure and bringing assets in and setting functions up and so forth. So you fast forward to when it comes to closure, you're, you're reversing those processes. Uh, 
and we're shutting down buildings and, and closing off activities and so forth. And the base closure process, uh, the way the law read, there had to be something designated, some entity designated to be the, the successor organization. And in the case of Mather, it was the county of Sacramento. So I was working on a day-to-day -day basis with uh, one of the county supervisors who had this region. Toby Johnson was his name, great guy. Um, and at that time, the rules of the road were we moved forward with closure. We vacated buildings and we did what we called pickled them. We, you know, shut off their power systems and uh, secured the water and the gas and all those kinds of things. We basically pickled the building, closed the building off. And before I took that action, I'd call Toby and say, I've got three buildings here. What do you want to do with them? What's your reuse plan? And, of course, at that time, they didn't have a reuse plan. Wow. I mean, they were working on that. Um, so we pickled it. <laughs> and we you shut it down. We closed them down. And, and what did you do with everything in there? Is it all shipped away? Um, different processes were followed. Uh, a lot of it went to scrap. A lot of it was transferred to other bases, other units uh, for use. Some of it was uh, transferred to the civilian world for their use. I know I uh, we had uh, some portable bleachers that were out on the ball fields, you know, around the base. And uh, schools out to the east needed those bleachers for their football field. And we just moved them out there, you know, drove them out there. Actually, guy owned a lumber company and came and got them with his, one of his trucks. But anywhere we could make a donation like that, we yeah. did that. And, okay. uh, and it went on. And you were the, the, the senior officer in charge yes. of closing the base. Yes. And because of the timelines associated with it, uh, Mather closed officially on September 30th of 1993. But our last class graduated in May of 1993. So we had a large closure ceremony out at the base. Um, we celebrated in 1993 Mather's 75th anniversary, <clears throat> and that was part of our closure uh, ceremony. Um, did something called Voices, where we had people that had lived and worked or went to school at Mather over the decades, really. Um, it was quite interesting having right. folks that had been here in the 50s and the 40s and so forth. Um, but graduated our last class, and during that uh, that closure ceremony, our last T-43 took off, flew a loop, low pass over the flagpole, and then recovered at uh, Randolph Air Force Base, and that was the home of the T-43 and the Navigator Training Program from, from then on. And how long did it take from the time they said it's closing to the time you locked the last door? How long was that process? Well, the designation of a, ba of a closure base yeah. came in round one of BRAC, which was 1988. And then 1993, oh, it closed. So five years. Five years. Yeah. And during that period of time, as I said, initially, you know, your pipeline's open, students are coming through, you're flying, everything's just normal, normal. But you really have to create a uh, a section of your staff that's now devoted to closure, right? And setting up those processes and functions that used to be uh, in in the backwater of your thinking uh, as a commander, uh, like. The, the crating operation that's in the civil engineer shop, that's always there at a base. But when you're designated for closure, that becomes immensely important <laughs> as you move towards that closure date, you know, getting stuff crated and put on trucks right. and shipped out of here. Right. So, uh, yeah, we, uh, we developed um, a mission statement. We revised our mission statement because of the multifaceted nature of it. And we just talked about our mission being to train, transfer, and close. 
and to close with class. Uh, so we, we recognize that we're going to continue to train navigators for the Air Force and the DOD in general, which we did. Uh, we would transfer our assets. The biggest asset, that, besides the aircraft, that was obviously large, but those are pretty easy to take off right. and move. Yeah. Uh, but the, the simulator complex that was here at Mather, uh, we, moved, we moved the simulator components, you know, large computer systems, up to, um, I think it was Hill, I can't remember exactly the location, but they were refurbished there and then shipped to Texas where they were stood up there to take their new mission there. So it's a complex process. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, there was four, actually I think there was five rounds of closure, but here in Sacramento, uh, Mather and the Sacramento Army Depot were both caught up in round one, but McClellan Air Force Base was caught, uh, was in round four of closure. And I had the occasion to come back to McClellan as my last assignment in the Air Force. I was the vice commander out there and helped close that base down. Wow. And, and it was kind of night and day difference between a round one closure base because it was so new. Everybody was kind of figuring out how to do it. And uh, round four, McClellan was way different, way easier in many ways. The successor organization there was not a, a government agency. It was... A private company, Larry Kelly uh, was yeah. CEO, and he's done wonders to redevelop wow. uh, that area, that base. So you started your Air Force career in Mather, mm -hmm. and you basically end or you close it. That must have been what was that emotion like? Because you must have stood there as a as the head guy there, the colonel in charge of closing. You must have looked back and thought, "Wow, you know what? I started all this here." Well, personally, yeah, it was interesting because that was my first assignment in the Air Force to start at Mather. And then uh, I actually thought about retiring at Mather. I had enough time in, in grade and all that to retire, but uh, consulted with my family and everybody was gun ho for another assignment, right. <laughs> which we did. Uh, but yeah, personally, it was, uh, you know, hate to see a base like that go. Uh, my wife will tell you that Many of the bases where I was commissioned at the Presidio in San Francisco, that's closed. Our second assignment in the Air Force was Castle Air Force Base down in Merced. It's closed. Mather, McClellan, you know, so it was professionally, it was a sign of the times. You know, we had waged, this country had waged the Cold War since the end of World War II. And in fact, that's our theme, and that's what we're honoring this year at this year's air show, is uh, paying tribute to the Cold War and the many activities that happened during that. But the Cold War was won in 1990, 91, depending on how you want to mark the date, through uh, years and years of, of a standoff with the Soviet Union and all the other things that were occurring, that, you know, the, uh, the Korean War, the war in Vietnam, the Cuban Missile Crisis. There was a number of things that were I would say, in many ways, we're part of an existential threat to our country. You know, the, the whole. And you were active through all of those incidents, right? I was. Well, I was. You were not through the, all. You were through... in the military. I mean, you were in the Air Force. Yes, for Vietnam, certainly. And, yeah. uh, but the not Q the Korean one. Korean, no, but yeah, that, Vietnam. Korean, but, but yeah, but we were. And I served in SAC for 10 years in, in Strategic Air Command, which was really the forefront of that Cold War interface. You know, the. SAC controlled the missiles and the, the bombers, and then, of course, the Navy controlled the nuclear submarines. But that standoff was really something. I mean, your your budgets were all driven by that, your force structure, 
your assignments, everything was predicated on uh, the potential conflict with the Soviet Union in a right. in a global nuclear war, which would be. So I, today, a reason to not go to war with America would be because of its air power. Why? Why is the air power? Why is air power so so um, influential in America? Like, how did that come about? Well. That's an interesting question because you think air power is really pretty young when you uh, compare it to ground power in the Army right. or naval power and so forth. Uh, arguably, uh, air power got its start, you know, 1903 when the Wright brothers flew, right. but World War I, uh, we were flying biplanes in right. Europe and so forth. Actually, that's actually how Mather started as a right. training base. Uh, but air power was clearly... Uh, a military instrument that if refined and perfected could could do important things. I mean, you think about World War II, uh, Battle of Midway, uh, Battle of Coral Sea with carriers. Those were the first battles where ships didn't actually come in contact. Airplanes did all the contact, did all the fighting, you know. Um, but air power matured uh, with systems over the years to where it could dominate the battlefield right. or if it was integrated properly in the battlefield. Um, you'll recall the first uh, uh, Gulf War, uh, yeah. Desert Shield yeah. and Desert Storm and the invasion of Kuwait by the Iraqis and so forth. Um, there's a plaque in the Pentagon that's kind of interesting. And, and as an air power enthusiast, I would point that out to somebody. The plaque is in the Army section of the Pentagon. And it shows the maneuvers that General Schwarzkopf's forces did in the desert to win the battle in four days. And on that plaque, there's no mention of the air war, which began about a month prior to General Schwarzkopf stepping off with his ground forces. And that air, that air campaign, which began in, in January of uh, 1991, was the real first time that strategic air power, precision air power was put to the test to where our air forces, all services, uh, were taking out the enemy's ability to see, you know, with the radars and so forth, uh, striking uh, strategic targets in the deep battle area, uh, such that, and, and we were so successful, we didn't lose aircraft at all, um, but was so successful that when the ground forces stepped off, and you, I don't know if you remember that very much, but um, there was estimates that we were going to have huge casualties and, and, you know, the air evacs into Europe to take care of our soldiers and, and our military personnel were, none of that materialized because when Schwarzkopf stepped off in, uh, in February of 91, within four days, the enemy was defeated right. because of air power. Right. Now, air power got its credit for that, of course, yeah. but that was really a lot of people would say, I would, that that war was a test of the Reagan buildup that occurred after Vietnam. You know, our forces were depleted in the late 70s. Uh, in 1980, President Reagan uh, took the reins, made it a point to build up the military, really to, to force the Soviets— to, to capitulate. Right. And, he, and he was successful in that. It happened on George Bush's watch, George H.W. Bush. But it was Reagan's buildup of the military and his, uh, 
his whole approach to standing standing up to the Soviets right. that brought them to capitulate eventually, and that was the end of the Cold War. Yeah. So air power is without a question, uh, a dominant capability. Yeah. But you'll note that today it's no longer the Air Force. It's now the Air and Space Force. And we actually, under President Trump, created a Space Force. Um, so space, to, That's the to, new... to quote the uh, Star yeah. Trek, the new frontier. Right, right. That's going to be the new one. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, of course, and technology takes you there. Yeah. And that's really from the Wright brothers' technology of air flying, uh, brought us to where we are today, and now we're in well, space. Well, I mean, look, now you have rockets that take off, and then they land right back where they took off. Can, yeah. 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 Okay, so now let's go back to Mather, and let's go back to present day. Um, so Mather now, we have the air show, and we're a couple of weeks away from the air show. We are. Uh, we had Darcy Brewer here, who is the executive director of the air show a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, we talked about all things air show, and she – told me that the air show is you like oh. you well you are <laughs> instrumental in that air show so tell us how did the air show begin here how did that come about well first let me correct my executive director the air show is a great bunch of volunteers right. a hard-working board yeah. of directors i'm one of the board members one of about 20 board members yeah. All of us committed to the mission of the Air Show, which is to uh, inspire youth, uh, honor our history, and shine a light on this region, the right. Ranch Cordova region. But my understanding of uh, when I left the Air Force and retired in 2000, I went to work for the Los Rios Community College right. System. I was a, a VP at one of the colleges, Sacramento City College downtown. And the Air Show got its start in about 2005. And my understanding of the rationale was that the director of the airports at that time and a group of concerned folks here in town, citizens that had linkage to Mather and, and the military and so forth, wanted to do something to kind of showcase Mather Airport. We closed Mather in 93. The airport didn't open as a commercial airport until 95. So it took a couple of years for the county to get going. And I, I would argue they're still working on a lot of development. And I'm, they are at Mather. You know, a lot of things are happening. But the air show was created to, to bring people back to see Mather, what it looks like, you know, 20 years after closure or 10 years after closure. I'm sorry. Uh, so that was the first air show that flew in 2005. And it was and kind were of. Were you involved in that or not? I yet? was not. No. I was okay. not. Uh, it actually was something of a train wreck because nobody anticipated the kind of interest there would be in seeing an air show at Mather. So wow. traffic became a mess. We actually cl ended up closing down Highway 50. It was really kind of a. Really? It was that much of a mess? Oh, yeah. It was. Wow. It, it, there was quite a traffic uh, jam with people trying to get to Mather and we didn't have a good traffic plan in place and so forth. So that was 2005. I was invited to join the board in 2007. Uh, one of the board members at that time was uh, Major General Jim Hopp, who was retired, had served at McClellan and other places. Uh, but I, I had known him from my military time. He invited me to join the board. I was happy to do that and uh, became a board member in 2007. And Compared to those early days to where we are today in 2023, uh, we're recognized throughout the airshow industry, the International Council of Airshows, ICAS as, as it's called. Uh, we are 
I get my quotes right here, but I think we're the largest civilian air show in the West. And this year, for example, we're hosting an ICAS Academy where we'll have 25 or 30 people from around the country that are kind of come out and watch how we put on an air show. Oh, The attention we pay to detail. It's like a Michelin star, like the same yeah. kind of thing in the restaurant business. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Well, because we pay attention to the details. Yeah. Uh, we're fully integrated with the community, with our tenants and, and uh, partners out at Mather. And we try to tell a story at every air show. And uh, I'm particularly fond of, in 2018, that was the 100-year anniversary of Mather Airport, right. Mather Air Force Base. And uh, that show was just terrific. I mean, we did a night show on Friday night, and uh, we had Saturday and Sunday. Uh, but we recognize different eras at Mather, you know, the World War One and the interwar years, World War Two, the Cold War, and then the civilian airport period of time that the developments occurred out here. And it really did a lot to, to shed shine a light on this region and all the great things uh you know our sponsors our presenting sponsors uh, ranch the city of rancho cordova is one and then the county of sacramento is the other so they're fully involved with uh, the show every year that we put on and i'm sure darcy uh told you that you know the air show is the big deal it's it's really busy time now as we right. prepare for the show right. here in a couple of weeks. But the California Capital Air Show is putting on events all throughout the year. Right. And many of them, well, you were out for the uh, yeah. the, the STEM Expo yeah. here recently. So um, most of them are, are directed towards youngsters, yeah. getting them the opportunity to not just get in the pilot business, that's certainly one aspect, but to see aviation careers that are yeah. available uh, on positive altitude or day of the airport where we'll, or day at the airport, we'll just bring kids out to the airport. And a lot of our partners like UPS, uh, the firefighters, uh, police, uh, aircraft maintenance, uh, the, the FBO, different tenants around the base will bring their assets over, park them around a yep. hangar and the kids can come out and crawl around them, take yep. pictures, look we at them. We were there last year. Yeah. We were filming and I thought, okay, we're going to an air show. But it was fascinating. I mean, you, as you're right, UPS was there, FedEx was there, yep. but the sheriff's office were there, the yep. mountain rescue people, the fire department. I mean, everybody's there, all of them. with all their helicopters and right. planes, and and you never know with the youngster what's going to spark exactly. an interest. They're going to, you know, see an airplane, see yeah. uh, a canine working with the cops, yeah. see a fire truck, you know, whatever it is that sparks an interest, and then we follow through with that by one of our main mission elements is scholarships. So since our inception, we've produced over a half a million dollars worth of scholarships or over 220 uh, uh, recipients of those scholarships. And we've been doing it long enough now that uh, some of the recipients of our scholarships have come back to see us as uh, pilots. Wow. Uh, one youngster in particular, I was particularly uh, happy to see, he was flying the F-18 Growler out of uh, Whidbey Island up in uh, Washington State. And his dad was still here. You know, his family was still yeah, here in yeah. this area. He flew his jet in, and I was able to pick up his dad at uh, the FBO and take him out to meet his son. Pretty cool. So when you joined the board of the air show, um, it, you must have been a very important um, part of that board because you knew Mather so well, right? I mean, you, you, you trained there that you were in charge of it, and you closed it. I mean, you must know every inch of that airport. Well, I... 
I, I would never say that. <laughs> I, and we're not modest on this program. Well, we I, I definitely had served at Mather yeah. and, and have a, a love for the airfield yeah. and, and uh, the history of it and so forth. So especially as a, the gray-haired member of the board now, I, I pay attention to the history aspects of things. Um, like every member of our board, we've got a very diverse uh, group of people, a great group of people to work with. Everybody brings something to the right. table. And yeah. each of us contributes as best we can, right. you know. Um, what can I say? It's just yeah, a great no. piece of I mean, people. Look, I I've organized events, and it's very complex. And the events that I organize or I have been involved with are nowhere as complex as with you. Because with the air show, you've got, you've got 100,000 people that are coming over two days. So you've got that issue with mm -hmm. safety and security, et cetera. But then more importantly, you've got the safety issues with these planes flying around yep. like inches from each other. And I mean, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of moving parts Correct. with this. Um, so. Well, and, and I mentioned our uh, uh, difficulties with the very first air show with right. traffic controls. I would say we've perfected now yeah. the traffic management system, Absolutely. parking and all that. But we didn't do that just as our board. Right. We've got great partners in the community uh, the Ranch Cordova uh, Police Department, the Sheriff, uh, California Air Patrol, all of them, you know, uh, they manage that system for us. They're part of our show cadre, if you will. Uh, we have a public safety group that's really impressive to sit down with in terms of firefighters, medical, um, threat assessors, that kind of thing. Uh, but when you've got that kind of expertise working with you, with a common mission in mind of pulling off a, a great, safe, effective air show, um, it, it makes doesn't make your job easier, but it makes it uh, more confident that you're going to have a successful outing on the weekend. Uh, yeah, safety in the air show industry it, it, clearly you're on the Number uh, one, right. It's 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 a big deal, and we have a professional director of operations that is with us every year. He's a contracted uh, right. member of our team. Uh, but he's also involved in the ICAS uh, world. Um, and there's no question that uh, we're paying attention to safety. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it's an absolute must, right. you know. And quite frankly, uh, you know, we work with military units all over the country to bring their assets in. And that's part of what you have to do is convince uh, a, a contributing military unit that you're not some fly-by-night outfit out there, you know, putting on an air show, that right. you're You've got a safe, secure ramp. You could recover the airplanes. You could taxi them or, or tug them into place and, and uh, keep track of them over the weekend while they're here. I know I over this weekend on Sunday, we've got a, uh, this past Sunday, as I was watching the 49er game, uh, a, a fellow called from Whidbey Island. He's He and his crew are bringing a P-8 in, which is uh, the anti-submarine uh, patrol aircraft now it replaced the p it didn't replace but it's the successor to the p3 anyway he called and uh he had to brief his commodore this week on him taking one of their jets and bringing it to mather for the weekend coming in on friday and leaving sunday night so he had a lot of questions about uh, where are we parking what's the security on the ramp uh, where do we stay do you have the right power carts do you have the right uh air conditioning units, right fuel, et wow. cetera, because we're a civilian base. And we have that dialogue with everybody that brings an airplane here because it's their responsibility to bring the aircraft in and have it be safe and secure over the weekend and then depart, uh, you know, after the show's over. 
Our great partners at Travis Air Force Base will be bringing all their heavy aircraft up here, the C-17, KC-10, C-5, and this year, first time, the KC-46, which is the new tanker. Uh, our good friends over at Beale, similarly, you know, a whole different mission, reconnaissance, but the U-2 and its supporting aircraft, the T-38. You're going to have a U-2? We'll have two of them. Two? There'll be one on the ground that you can see up close, and uh, the T-38, which it's its companion trainer, but then uh, the U-2 will actually kick off the show with the Star-Spangled Banner at the beginning. Wow. Yeah. And and again— At the STEM show I met, um, obviously they had a, a U-2 pilot. Yes, yes. It was a major. Right, correct. And on Thursday, I interview an old, a U-2 pilot as well. Yeah, and, and with the, the Cold War theme for this year, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis, those missiles were discovered by the U-2. Yeah. So we'll be able to tell that short story and, and uh, you know— we put on a film festival, um, which is the week after the air show. It's mm. a documentary film festival. So we show 60 documentaries over two days. Um, put, and there's a three, or, three or four of us that do it. The moving parts of a documentary film festival are incredible. You've got 60 films, which means 60 filmmakers, showing them, scheduling, et cetera, et cetera. It pales into, into what you must go through with all the moving parts that you must have in the air show. How, tell, just what, talk us through the workings of the air show. How do you even begin to think, where are these planes going to park when they've done their thing? How are we going to fuel them? How are we going to move the pilots around? These are just things that I'm thinking. Right. Um, how do we maintain safety? And on and on. And where do we, when they, in the display area of the air show where they're all parked, it's like a big garage, like a big parking lot of airplanes. Right. How do you get them on there? How do you position them? And how do you make sure the wings don't touch each other? And on and on and on. How do you figure all that out? Well, um, I think it starts with our, our two employees, if you will, with the air show. Which is amazing that two people. Two people, but that. that's uh, Darcy Brewer. Is our and they're not frazzled. They're like, oh, they're very pleasant and they're oh, very... They're terrific. Yeah. They're both yeah. terrific. And well, Darcy Brewer is our executive director yeah. and then Angela Terry is yeah. our operations director. And those two people do an immense amount of work throughout but the year. But they do that through the year, right? Throughout the year, yeah. coordinating everything. Yeah. And uh, as I mentioned, we've got a working board of 20 or so board members it's and an active board. You're all doing something. We're, we describe ourselves as a working board. Yeah. And most people that become new board members that have served on other boards say, wow, wow this is really a working yeah. board because <laughs> we're out moving tables and setting right. up chairs for the STEM XO. Right. A lot of the workers So everybody there. has an area of responsibility. Correct. What's Correct. yours? Well, I initially worked in the uh, safety and security arena. Yeah. Uh, I, I now... I'm doing performers committee. Okay. And I was going to say that our our board is broken down into committees that have different responsibilities. Uh, I've got the performers response uh, performers committee with a fellow by the name of Glenn that works over at the the airport. And our job is to look at what's going to be on the ramp, how's the ramp going to be configured. Uh, to include all aspects, you know, where do the uh, medical tents go? Where do the cooling tents go? Where do the aircraft go? Where do the chalets go? Where do the food service activities? All that stuff is put onto a, uh, a schematic diagram, you know, a scale diagram. Our logistics committee then has uh, a leader, but also a bunch of volunteers. You know, I, I can't 
speak to the air show doing anything without acknowledging a thousand plus volunteers that make it happen every year. And every volunteer does just that. They volunteer their time and their, their skill and their expertise and their service to their community. And we, we can't pull the show off without those volunteers, but they all bring something to the table. We've got a bunch of loggies logistics folks uh, that have incredible skills of driving heavy, heavy machinery, forklifts, uh, high lifts, those kinds of things that move, they transform the airport. It's, it's underway right now. Yeah. Uh, and we get to a point where certain parts of the airport are actually shut down as we close major right. taxiways that now are run by the air show. But when the air show completes on Sunday, by Wednesday, we'll have everything cleared and the airport fully restored back and back to its function. But throughout the course of the air show, the airport's open. UPS, DHL, FedEx. They're still so working. Everybody's working. And and we have to pay attention to that no, as far as uh, what's open or not. But it's like going to war. You know, there's a whole bunch of people got to right. do a whole bunch of things, and it's all got to come together at the right time. And I, again, I'd be repeating myself, but thousand plus volunteers, uh, the board members broken up into committees that have different responsibilities, different areas. And then our two leaders in the form of Angela and Darcy, uh, we pull it off. And Angela and Darcy have done such great work within the airshow industry that they're in demand all over the, the they country. Are? Oh, yeah. Wow, look yeah. at them. Yeah. 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 And in conducting classes, uh, the, the ICAS convention happens every fall and well, winter, actually, in December in Las Vegas. And they teach uh, an array of classes there to people that are interested in putting on an air show somewhere. I will tell you that the military services, which are having difficulty recruiting these days for a variety of reasons, but the military now view air shows a little differently than they did maybe just five or 10 years ago. They look at it at as what truly is a recruiting opportunity. Yeah. So they're more interested in getting assets here so they can be on the, the ground for the public to see, uh, for bringing their recruiting teams, which if when you're at the air show uh, in a couple of weeks here, you'll see all the services, the Guard and Reserve uh, recruiters are out there, but they're positioned close to colleges and universities, uh, other kinds of recruiters that are, uh, once again, we're, it's a one-stop shop for people to come look at career opportunities that might be out there. Might be serving your country in uniform, but it also might be serving as an aircraft maintainer, uh, you know, going to a college, uh, university to, to study aeronautics or whatever. Lots of opportunities. So just two quick things as we come to a close. So what's going on? What happens at May the today? Just, you know, air show aside. What is May the airport today? Well, it's uh, got a very robust fixed-base operator, modern aviation uh, with general aviation aircraft all over the place. Uh, the EVA uh, schoolhouse is out there teaching uh, young pilots to fly. So there's, that, I think that's a nationalist Chinese uh, uh, school, flying school. Uh, but then our big, the big tenants there, the UPS, you know, I don't know if you've noticed, uh, UPS used to have a jet or two on the ramp at any given time. Now you look and there's four or five or six. Right. And uh, FedEx too, right? Uh, FedEx is oh, not no, here. No, it's UPS, yeah. FedEx, yeah. Uh, UPS is here at Mather. FedEx is yeah. over at the International yeah, Airport. Yeah, yeah. They'll be present for the air show. But DHL also flies out yeah. there. Um, and then I've seen military aircraft there. Oh, helicopters? At, at Mather? Yep. Yeah. 
Well, the, that's the Army Air National Guard. Okay. And they fly the HH-60. They're a medical unit. Oh, that's uh, a medical unit? Yes. Well, with the, um, yes. Yeah. I think their their mission is medical, but they also fly, like, during firefighting times. You'll see those airplanes with all the big, uh, uh, you know, the orange stripes yeah, they put yeah. on them. They look kind of ugly, but that, right. that what helps you see the airplane right. in the air. Uh, so, yeah, the, the, the Army Guard unit, the... Uh, Aircraft maintenance units that are there. Mather Aviation is a huge facility. Yeah. I, I'm a little embarrassed about the the outside of that building. It was there when Mather was open, right. and we didn't get to it as far as painting it or making it look pretty. But it's an old, old hangar, but they do a lot of business in that building. And then, as I say, general aviation with the, uh, with the FBO uh, here, all the new hangars that have been built out there. And there's still plenty of room to grow for Bather. And uh, I, I'm sure the county airport system, I mean, they maintain a presence out at uh, Bather to continue to improve the airport and make it uh, what it could be. Yeah. So if I was there with you and I said, Colonel Martinelli, take me to your office. <laughs> could you do that? I could not. No? It's been demolished. It's gone? Yeah. Yeah. Where you come in to, on Mather Field Road, uh, when you're coming on to Mather what used to be the uh, the Air Force Base, and you're kind of heading south to your left would be the VA hospital and all that complex. Right there in front of you is where the little building was that oh, okay. uh, my headquarters was, wow. and that's uh, been torn down. Most of the, the NAV training facilities are torn down. They yeah. were old in yeah. World War II barracks in many cases. Yeah. But all the, uh, the, uh, the three-tier uh, dormitories uh, there's a lot of that activity that's still there. Those yeah. buildings are all standing. Yeah. And the hospital, which is now a VA hospital. So the the um, the buildings that look like a hotel, Yeah, I mean, that's where, that was the accommodations yes. for people that work there? That was uh, what was called the BOQ, the Bachelor Officer Quarters. Oh, okay. Uh, so most of our students. Are they like studio apartments? Or? Yeah. yeah. They're, uh, they're two bedrooms connected by a bathroom, basically. Oh, and yeah. a little... Uh, Kitch, yeah. kitchenette area yeah, yeah, where you can, yeah. but the lieutenants who were coming through training here that's that's, that's where, where you they live. live yeah unless you're so married that's in a lot of life those buildings oh boy <laughs> <laughs> good and bad i'm sure even when i came out here in 86 to go through i had to go through instructor uh training school and it was a three-month program i left my family in the washington dc area i came out here as a bachelor you know qualified bachelor yeah. uh, but stayed in those dormitories wow. while i was going to school because i was just i was flying and simulating so every you've day. lived in one of those oh yeah. yeah 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 wow all right so now we're going to come to a close so let's this this um program will air a couple of weeks before like before the air show um and it'll be pushed out by a lot of bit of the city pushes it out and so tell us what are we going to expect or what to expect in the 2023 California Capital Air Show. What are we going to see this year? Well, as always, we, we take pride in putting on a, a great show. The uh, Thunderbirds will headline the program this year, and they'll be the last flyer on both Saturday and Sunday. That'll be loud. Yes, but I must admit that uh, there's some performers uh, that get even louder. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, I always... Uh, but the loud is the, the great part of right. it, I think. But a very diverse group of civilian performers, acrobatic acts, those kinds of things. Uh, and then the military array of flying will, will be just dazzling. But uh, we've got the A-10 demo team. The A-10 hasn't been out here for a while. The, the, the Warthog 
quite an impressive airplane. Uh, F-18, the Navy F-18 will fly its demo, but also a legacy flight with a Bearcat, I think, this year. Uh, the Air Force A-10 will fly with a legacy aircraft, the P-51. <coughs> those legacy flights uh, are magnificent in, in my mind. I always tear up when I see those because you're talking about a modern jet with its World War II or earlier uh, counterpart, you know, flying together, uh, talking about the, the legacy. Uh, Travis will be flying a low pass of all their mission aircraft. So wow. the KC-10, the C-5, the C-17. And these are active duty correct. planes. Uh, those that will be in the air will take off at Travis, fly their approach here, and, you know, it'll be 500 feet off the ramp, and you're seeing those massive airplanes. On but both then, days that happens? Yes, both yeah. days. Uh, that's the kind of support we're getting yeah. from the Air Force. And, and that's a one-time deal, though, right? It only happens once. Yeah, they'll fly across the airfield, but all those aircraft will also be on static display. Oh, okay. We're bringing those in because of the size. You've got to bring them in early to get them positioned on the ramp, and then you fill in around them. But so Travis, uh, all its mission aircraft will fly. And then Beale, its mission aircraft, the U-2, will fly. Uh, I mean, if you haven't seen the U-2 fly, it's something no, no, to behold. I'm I have this renewed interest in the since meeting the pilot at the STEM yeah. show, and he, I mean, some of the things that he said, and it, and actually made me research the U two because mm -hmm. I mean you know what the U two is right the U two, you think it's a spy plane yeah. or it's whatever it is, but um, he said in the STEM um, um, event that they fly right on the edge of space. Correct that their commercial speed, so 400 miles an hour, but that their indicator is like they're going 100 miles an hour Correct. because they're so high. Correct. And they wear a space suit. Correct. Wow. I yeah. mean, that's something of a mission. Else, right? And, and that airplane, all the equipment they f fly with, the, the suit and so forth, the, the pressure suit that they fly with, uh, a lot of the other equipment necessary to get that thing airborne will be on the ground here at Mather. And they fly... All those pilots that fly the U-2 also fly the T-38 as a companion trainer because they can't get enough hours in the U-2 when it's when it's flying, it's flying a mission. So they fly in a T-38 to get instrument approaches and stay proficient at landing wow. and all that kind of stuff. So all that equipment will be on the ground. Wow. And all of Travis's equipment will be on the ground. Wow. We'll have an area called Travis Town. Right. Uh, uh, our Navy friends will bring a P-8 in. Uh, along and next to the P-8, which is the current anti-submarine warfare aircraft, we're going to have a, a PV-2D, which is the Harpoon, which was a World War II vintage anti-submarine warfare aircraft. And uh, we're proud to say we'll have a pilot that flew the PV-2, the Harpoon, during World War II will be our guest for the show. Wow. 101-year-old fellow by the name of Pat Patterson. 101? 101 years old. Wow. Flew combat. We'll also have an Air Force uh, gentleman, Joe Peterburs, uh, who uh, was over, I think he's over 102 wow. or something. That's incredible. But uh, flew in World War II. And then, of course, our most favorite veteran of World War II, Bud Anderson, now Brigadier General Bud Anderson, was well, Colonel Bud Anderson. Uh, I think Bud's 103, triple ace from World War II, flew right. the P 51. Uh, so and what will you be doing on those days? Um, my role is uh, on the ramp. So I think the right answer to that question, as far as Dar Darcy Brewer is concerned, anything I'm told to do is the yeah. answer. But primary function is uh, the ramp setups and uh, the aircraft on the ground and just taking care of 
taking care of business there. Yeah. You know, uh, and in the, the week prior, it will be all setting up everything right. out there and then receiving the aircraft as they come right. in, getting them in the right position. And once it's over, how quickly do they all get out of town? Well, a lot of aircraft will leave that night. Oh, uh, yeah. A lot of them have uh, requirements to get out. The heavies out of Travis will take a couple of days to get out, usually Monday or Tuesday. Uh, but by Wednesday, we'll return the entire airport Back. to the airport yeah. in, in its uh, original gone. configuration. Yeah. Uh, so that's that, that's so, a that's a testament to our logistics team. Right. Again, again, that's a great group of people out there who work their butts off. And, and just uh, to show the enormity of it, this must involve the FAA, right? Obviously, oh. you've got that many airplanes oh, coming yeah. in yeah. and out. And yeah. Oh, no, the FAA is involved every step of the way in terms of approving our our airfield layout, the flight patterns, and all that kind of stuff. They're, they're on the stand with the announcer and the air boss, the FAA rep is up there watching wow. what's going on. So yeah, that's a you know tip of the hat to the safety yeah. uh, requirements that are underway. And finally, the theme this year is there a theme? You said Cold War. Is yes, that sir. Yeah. We uh, we always try and pick a theme. I mentioned 2018 was 100 years of Mayfair. Yeah. 2019 we did the 75th anniversary of D-Day. Uh, this year we're paying tribute to uh, the the um, Cold War and the aircraft and events that uh, were participated in that. You know, the Berlin airlift, it was 75 years. We'll have a C-47 on the ground uh, for static display. Uh, and the C-47 was one of the, the main transport aircraft that participated in the Berlin airlift. Uh, the Korean War, 75, no, 70 years for the Korean War. Armistice was 1953. Cuban Missile Crisis, 1962. The uh, Vietnam War, 55 to 75, but the Paris Peace Accords happened in 73. So it's uh, the 50 year anniversary of the the U.S. withdrawal from right. Vietnam. But we're also honoring uh, Operation Homecoming, which uh, brought all our POWs out of uh, Vietnam. So um, the theme is patriotic. Always patriotic. Patriotic. Always yeah. patriotic. But we always try to capture some historical event like the end of uh, the, like D Day. In this case, the Cold War, which encompasses a whole bunch of years, but a significant events that occurred during that, that Cold War. And we try to get aircraft on the ground that can tell that, helps tell that story or in the air and tell that story. Yeah. Well, that's coming from England, as I do. Um, in England, you're taught that um, England was saved by the, by the Air Force by the in the Battle of Britain. Yep. Without the Battle of Britain, we'd probably, who knows what would have happened. I agree. And so you're brought up in England to be a very strong sort of patriot supporter of, of the Royal Air Force, which has then, you know, you have an interest. And I'm very in awe of, of the American air power in the world. I mean, it's incredible what, what America can do in the air. Yep. And they take care of business. Well, it was a great adventure for me personally for to serve 30 years, but yeah. uh, I couldn't be prouder of my time in the military. And, uh, that yep. service. Well, Colonel Robert J. Martinelli, thank you for being on the Rancho Cordova podcast. Thank you. And thank you for everything that you've done, um, not only for Rancho Cordova, but for this country. Well, thank you. I appreciate and it. And we always finish our show with a series of fun questions, and you haven't listened, so we're going to have them and see. They're very, I, th I think you're going to do fine. So tell us what is one word that others would use to describe you?
detail-oriented. <laughs> and, you know, I'm sitting here, I'm thinking, your skill is detail, <laughs> like <laughs> to do what you have done. What is one word that you would use to describe yourself? Planner. <laughs> Planner? Yeah. If you could be a – this one I think is going to be easy for you. If you could be a person for a day beside yourself, who would it be and why? Hey. And people always say alive or living, alive or dead. It, it doesn't matter. I think uh, my son for a day. Your son? What he's doing yeah. these days. I. You'd like to be in his shoes for well, a day? Well, I, I know he's enormously busy uh, in his work over in Israel. And I know he's out on the road a lot. I'd like to be him for a day to see what he's yeah. up to. <laughs> I mean, I, well, I'm not going to ask you what he does, but if you're working for the State Department and you're stationed in the Middle East, you know it's serious business. It is. Yeah. Um, it, what is your biggest pet peeve? Disorganization. <laughs> yeah. What is something, one thing about you that few people would know? Few people would know? Yeah. that I'm impatient that a lot of people might know <laughs> certainly my wife does <laughs> yeah and finally what is the biggest lesson that you learned from your parents hard work yeah hard work that's what they instilled yeah no question about that well Colonel Martinelli thank you very much for being with us <laughs>